This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you, Professor Dorley, for that kind introduction. And I want to say that I'm grateful to the Ethics Department, the Department of Africana Studies, and to the Philosophy Department for sponsoring this event today. Good afternoon to all of you. Good afternoon. You look beautiful. It's good to be standing where I'm standing because you get to see all these beautiful faces. So today I want to talk a little bit about a topic that you've seen on the poster outside. And the, the title of the talk is Let Us Make God, Theology and the Political. And you'll notice from the poster outside that the word God is in a lowercase g. Some of you, if you're anything like me, maybe you looked at that and said, isn't that terrible? They put God in lowercase letters. How could you miss that typo, right? Well, it's not a typo. It is in lowercase letters for a reason. And that is because the thrust of today's lecture is the idea that whereas according to the Judeo-Christian tradition, God makes human beings in his image, God with a capital G, makes human beings in his image, according to the Judeo-Christian theological tradition, human beings, unfortunately, in my view, have developed the habit of making a God small g, in their image. And when you study the Judeo-Christian narrative in Scripture, what you see in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 is God proclaiming, let us make man. Well, philosophers have a certain way of thinking about God that we're going to talk more about as we go further into the lecture, where they sort of come together and they say, let us make God, small g. Now, there are consequences to this idea of human beings creating a God in their image. These consequences are not just theological, but they are ethical, and they become, at some point, political. So let's take a step back and let's trace through the development of this concept of human beings making a God in their image, and let's see if we can't flesh out some of the circumstances that lead to what I believe are some rather disastrous moral and political consequences from this idea. Well, the idea of human beings creating a God in their image is what I'm calling in this lecture something called ontotheology. Ontotheology is a type of philosophical theology where philosophers or I should say it's a philosophical understanding of God that suggests that 
we have to have an unmoved mover. There has to be a beginning of something. There has to be a first cause of something. So I don't know if we have any philosophy majors here, but if any of you have ever studied Aristotle, what you will notice is in Aristotle's metaphysics, he is trying to come to a solution to some of the problems in ancient Greek philosophy. And one of the principal problems in ancient Greek philosophy with which he is dealing is this problem of change and motion. And so in an attempt to do that, he has to deal with all the views of his predecessors, and he does that. He talks about them at length. Of course, like any good philosopher, he has to talk about why everyone else is wrong and why what he's about to tell us is the last word, right? I mean, we wouldn't be good philosophers unless we did that. And so after he does that, he, he speaks at length about how there have to be first principles, right? There has to be a, a baseline, if you will. There has to be a first cause. And so he reaches the conclusion that the first cause of motion is itself unmoved. And that cause of motion is God. And then there's all sorts of terminology that go into Aristotle's explanation, potential versus actual, etc. Let's take a look at that for a moment. Aristotle gives the famous example. An acorn grows into an oak tree. And throughout the life of the growth process, there's movement, there's change, and eventually the acorn ceases to become and is an oak tree. It moves from the potential encoded within the acorn to the actualization of an oak tree. And it becomes what it was sort of programmed to be. Puppies grow into dogs. Kittens grow into cats, right? Babies grow into either full-grown women or full-grown men. And so <clears throat> you have this natural process in the world that according to Aristotle is a sort of <clears throat> mimicking or longing after God, who is a divine being, that is completely actualized. And so since everything wants to be just like God, Everything is moving in the direction of God because everything is in this process of actualization. And the objective <clears throat> is to get to that place so that, of actualization so that when you look at Aristotle's universe, it is a universe in which there is motion and change, but now there is an explanation for it. There is a rational ac account of it. There is something that we can put our finger on to say, this is how this works. And we can explain it rationally. Now, that's what the philosopher wants to do. The philosopher wants to be able to give an explanation of things. Wants to be able to ground things in reason. To be able to give accounts. You hear philosophers speak in this way often. They want to give an account of this or an account of that. It's almost as though philosophy undertakes the ambitious task 
of trying to explain everything, right? And this is what we get on a philosophical account. Now, if you contrast what you get in Aristotle's universe and Aristotle's God with, say, for example, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There's no question. There's no argument, right? There's no argument about God as such in the opening of the scripture, in the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's almost as though God is sort of presupposed, right? So there's this difference in the way that we conceive of God in philosophy as opposed to theology. Now, <clears throat> what happens is ontotheology arises when we attempt to give a philosophical account of God from within theology to explain God, his attributes, etc. But not just explaining God and his attributes. Ontotheology may take multiple forms, right? So we have, for example, in theology, we have a certain, we have what we might call theology proper, which is an account of God. We also have an a theological anthropology, which is an account of human beings. And reason is up to something very different in philosophy than it is in theology. In philosophy, reason wants to explain, and in theology, that's not necessarily the objective. Often in theology, you have other concepts like tradition or revelation, etc., that have very little to do with these rigorous sorts of rational accounts that you're looking for, that philosophers are looking for and trying to gain. All right, well, what does all this have to do with politics and the political, because it seems like these are very sort of abstract discussions that wouldn't affect how we see the world on a cultural level or on a social level or on a political level. But let's pause here for a moment. So I want to give you an example of something that I see as an onto-theological argument. So during chattel slavery in the United States, it was uh, Christianity was notorious for its theological justifications of slavery, right? And one of the theological justifications of slavery was a theological anthropology Right? That is to say, a theological explanation of human beings that I think is fundamentally ontotheological. That is to say, what the example I'm about to give, I think, is fundamentally rooted in a human desire to explain things that has disastrous political consequences. And so here it is. In the 18th century, there was a theologian named Reverend Godwin. And Reverend Godwin was trying to respond to the controversy of whether or not it was permissible 
to baptize slaves into the church. And so Reverend Godwin came up with an argument, and his argument went like this. He said, slaves have a body and they have a soul. Their body belongs to their earthly master, but their soul belongs to God. And so on Godwin's argument, you could at once both justify slavery and baptize slaves. Now, Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, responded to this argument by saying that it was too, and these are his words, quote, too metaphysical. That is to say, it was almost so effective, philosophically speaking, that it was problematic from a moral standpoint. In other words, you may be able to give this explanation, right? But what are the real consequences of this? So Christianity, in its account of human beings, essentially, in one fell swoop, both justifies slavery and also justifies baptizing slaves. Now, Douglas thought that the baptizing slaves part was a good thing. And the reason why he thought it was a good thing was because if you say that the slave has a soul, at least the slave is a human being. And if the slave is a human being, then they can't be property. So Douglas thought that part was good. But the part that was not so good was the use of this philosophical argument to justify the institution of chattel slavery, because that's what this argument did. Now, if we push into this kind of reasoning a little further, we see a certain kind of philosophical, I would argue, ontotheological reasoning at its core. Godwin says human beings have a soul and a body. Famous philosopher said, human beings have a soul and a body. Descartes. Descartes says we have a soul and a body. Descartes also says that the soul outlives the body. Godwin says we have a soul and a body. Godwin says the soul will outlive the body. Godwin says that the soul belongs to God. The soul will go to heaven. But in the meanwhile, the body will be enslaved here on earth. This is a kind of thinking about the world or about human beings that wants to be able to explain human beings in their entirety, and this desire for an explanation winds up having the disastrous moral and political consequence of legitimating chattel slavery and it winds up justifying chattel slavery. And Christianity in the process is completely absolved of any responsibility for it. Why? Because I would argue that Christianity's 
Impetus is not the impetus of ontotheology. The impetus of ontotheology is to explain things. And when we want to explain things in terms of reason, and since reason does not exist independently of human beings, reason is a part of who we are, instead of a God that makes a human being in his image, you now have human beings projecting a certain image onto the world and making, the, making their God, small g, the God of their express image. So I guarantee you, I don't think I'm going out on a limb, I should say. I guarantee he's kind of strong. I don't think I'm going out on a limb to suggest that according to Reverend Godwin, God was probably a white man. Right? I mean, if, if the soul belonged to God, right, if God was going to justify slavery, then God probably was a white man. So there is a God at work in ontotheology, but that God is a God with a small g. It's not a God with a big g, right? It's a God made in the express image of the tradition of reason that produces that God. And the tradition of reason that produces the God that justifies slavery comes from a certain racial, ethnic, gender makeup. And so we get a God, small g, in the image of human beings. This God is not the God of the Bible. This God is the, is, becomes ultimately, in my view, an idol of human rationality. Now, it's not to say that reason is somehow bad in every way. This is not an all-out attack on reason and rationality. Goodness knows we need reason at various levels. But there is a sphere within which our reason works well and helps us get along well in the world, and then there's a sphere where our reason can get us into trouble. And I'm interested in that sphere of reason's operation that, according to the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, extends beyond its bounds and begins to reason about things like God and like the soul that can get us into trouble. And so that's a, that's a classical example of what I think is ontotheology. Interestingly, Immanuel Kant offered criticisms at length about this idea of a soul that outlives the body. And one of his criticisms was that if we start to think of the soul in those terms, and if we allow reason to function beyond its bounds in this way, we begin to forget about practical and moral concerns. That is to say, to put it in contemporary parlance that you may hear in the church 
you can become so heavenly minded to the point where you're no earthly good. And you may be able to sit around and think and solve puzzles intellectually, but the notion of a soul is not something that we ought to be thinking about for the sake of understanding it rationally, but rather according to Immanuel Kant, when we think of a soul, we ought to be thinking about it from a moral or from an ethical standpoint. And if we think, if we allow reason to function in this way, we wind up getting in the way of moral concerns, and lo and behold, that's what we're left with after Reverend Godwin's argument. We're left with the moral concern that Christianity has just been used, or that at least a certain type of reasoning from within the Christian tradition has just been used to justify the institution of chattel slavery. And it's this kind of reasoning that Kant condemned for that very reason. Because when we allow reason to extend beyond its bounds, we wind up treading on the ground of morality. And when we do that, that has consequences. And one such consequence is the justification of the moral abomination of chattel slavery. But of course, such an argument would probably not recognize moral abominations. Why? Because such an argument is not concerned with morality. It's concerned with knowledge. It's concerned with understanding, with explaining, with giving an account of something. And again, there's nothing wrong with giving accounts of things in and of themselves, but when we allow our reason to be misappropriated in this theological context, we can end up with politically and morally disastrous results. There's another sphere or dimension of ontotheology that I also think has disastrous political consequences. So we've talked about reasoning about the nature of the soul. Sometimes philosophers call that psychology. It comes from the Greek word suke, which means soul. So we, we talk about that sometimes in terms of rational psychology. But I also want to talk about another type of reasoning called theodicy. Theodicy. Theodicy is, in some sense, a response to what philosophers call the problem of evil, right? So the problem of evil is this logical construct where we say God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, God is all-loving, right? He's all-good, but then evil exists. And the challenge to a lot of religious believers is to figure out how to reconcile the existence of all those good things about God with the reality of evil in the world. Now, without getting too deep into this idea of theodicy for an explanation, what I will say is that over time, there have been a variety of explanations for the reality of evil in the world. Some of those explanations are called things like free will theodicies, where we 
hold human beings responsible. God gave human beings free will, and so the evil that you see in the world is the result of human beings and their behavior. It's not the result of God. But the end game in all of this is to sort of absolve God of any responsibility for evil in the world, because in some sense, if we allow for that, then it compromises one of his other attributes, right? So now we come to a place where when we speak of theodicy, we can often speak of it in terms of things being God's will, right? God has a divine plan, right? There's a plan for things, and there's certain things that we just don't have any control over. And besides, everything does happen for a reason, doesn't it? You and I chatted about this earlier, right? There's a German philosopher named Gottfried Leibniz. Thank you. It's a German philosopher named Gottfried Leibniz. And Gottfried Leibniz has what he calls, or what has become known as, the principle of sufficient reason. And that means that everything that happens, happens for some reason. Leibniz had a vision of the universe that was entirely rational. He wanted it to be rational, right? Everything had to make sense. Everything happened and everything in the world was as it was because God has a pre-established harmony and everything that is the way it is in the world has to be that way. So if I am standing here giving this lecture and holding a bottle of water, the universe has, God has prearranged the universe this way. You are all sitting here listening to me now because God has prearranged the universe this way. Everything happens for a reason. We have to be able to explain everything in terms of a reason. And according to Leibniz, he says when we can't, he says it's just like looking on a blackboard and seeing a complex mathematical problem and at first being confused, but then when we really apply ourselves to it, and we're able to solve the problem, now we can understand how everything worked out exactly the way it did and how we got to the answer. He says life sometimes is like that. He has a great essay called Theodicy where he gives that example. Here's the problem. How do you explain large-scale world tragedies? How do you explain things that happen to individuals, right? I mean, it's almost intuitive that we say, well, you know, it's God's will. These things kind of happen. Not a lot you can do about it, right? So that when George Zimmerman was being interviewed not too long after he shot Trayvon Martin, he said it was God's will. He said it may have been God's will for things to work out this way. And what's interesting about that is, now you, you might say, well, wait a minute. George Zimmerman's not a philosopher, right? You may say, well, I get Reverend Godwin. He's, he's at least a theologian, right? But George Zimmerman's not a philosopher. And I had this discussion earlier with a colleague. So how can you connect George Zimmerman's statement that something was God's will to this classical tradition of theodicy? Well, here's how. The reason why it's so popular to say that something is God's will 
or to say that things happen the way they did, or to say, you know, everything happens for a reason, is because as human beings, we are rational. We are rational creatures, and it is our reason that clamors for an explanation. So yes, on one hand, it may be sort of a popularized cliche or something that we say, but it gets that status because of its roots within our thinking and within the way in which human beings want to explain things in the world. Now, he also wants to justify himself, which is another disturbing correlate of ontotheology, that it occludes our moral responsibility, right? And when we speak of evil or of things that happen to people in the world and we're able to explain it with reference to some sort of divine plan, then if there's really a divine plan, why would I, for example, protest? Why would I be motivated to some sort of political action? Right? Why would I try to do anything to overcome the state of affairs? Because after all, if I'm standing here holding this bottle of water, there's not a whole lot that you, me, or anybody else could do about it because God set things up this way. God made the universe this way. There's nothing you could do to avoid being here today, right? So we, we begin to have this issue of moral responsibility and this problem of having to explain social and political events in these, what I believe, are ontotheological terms that prevent us from having an authentic sense of moral responsibility and accountability. Now, some might say, and I presented a paper earlier today, some might say that it's through the, uh, one of my, the commentator on my paper, I don't, I don't see him here, but the commentator on my paper made a good point. He said, well, Maybe things are the way they are in the world because reason is lacking in public discourse. Maybe we need more rational discussion in, in conversation. Maybe we need more of that. So maybe reason isn't altogether bad. And I agree. It's not altogether bad. It's, there's a certain kind of reasoning that is bad, a certain kind of reasoning that aims to give a philosophical and rational account of God is the kind of reasoning that I'm after. I'm not after, my, my target, right, is not reasoning as such. I mean, we need reason to work within, a certain, within certain parameters and within certain spheres. But there's a certain way that we reason that cheapens God and transforms God into an idol of our making and regrettably, in Western civilization, most of the philosophers have been white males. And so the god of philosophy is going to reflect a white male image. In Aristotle's politics, Aristotle says he goes on to construct a, 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 a city. He talks about the, the polis, right? 
as a microcosm of the universe. And guess who, who are the only people who are fit to be slaves? Non-Greeks. If you're not Greek, you're fit to be a slave. Well, I mean, but that makes sense, right? Because this is a Greek who's thinking this way. So, of course, you know, I mean, Aristotle's God, right? Small g, the unmoved mover. I bet he's Greek, too. He's not, he's not non-Greek, because if he's non-Greek, then that God has to be a slave, right? Aristotle calls anyone who's non-Greek a barbarian. And so we have a habit of constructing philosophical idols. And when we construct philosophical idols and when we approach God, the question of God, when we approach the question of God from a purely rational standpoint that wants to give a rational account, that wants to be rigorous in its, in its philosophical understanding, we run into problems because that kind of thinking spills over into our moral and into our political lives. Okay? Why don't I stop there and see if you guys have any questions? So I'll pause here if you have any questions or comments. Yes. You're speaking of like you're speaking of Old Testament atrocities, yes, wholesale genocidal kind of yeah, okay. So are, are you suggesting that, that perhaps the, the Old Testament atrocities that you're referencing, that they could, that they would somehow, for, for someone to justify those in some way, would somehow be ontotheological? Yes. I okay. Think. Okay. I think that's the 
Okay, well, see, I, I, th I don't think that they would be, right? Because I think immediately when you start to talk about those kinds of Old Testament atrocities, I think from the very beginning, you're not so much dealing with reason as you are with revelation. I think, there's, I think the starting point is different. The starting point for ontotheology is a desire to explain God. That's what, that's according to my understanding, right? So I think that when you want to, you, when you want to be able to know God, when you want to be able to explain God, I think that's the starting point for ontotheology. In those examples, it seems like, it seems like you don't begin there. It seems like you begin with some sort of revelation of God saying to people, this is what I want you to do, and then people carrying it out. Now, unless, unless what you're saying is that, when, that people can claim to know for certain what God's will is such that they can then go ahead and do those things. Is that what you're getting at? So, right. I see what you're saying. You see? So, yeah. And I'm not, and I'm not necessarily saying, mm -hmm. I, I'm not necessarily making a judgment mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. either way. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, can you end up then with that same, that same God who mm -hmm. one could just, one could argue, is for slavery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think you can. Yeah. I think I understand your question now, and I, I guess... Sure that I, understand <laughs> I, I think I understand it better than I did at first, but yeah, I think so. I think you can, and perhaps that's the, that's the danger of it. I mean, I guess my, the, the ethical import of what I'm saying is that it's very dangerous to try to get God to do what we want God to do. Okay, and, and yes, I agree. Right. So, I agree. Mm -hmm. So, if, when we do that, do we run a risk of ending up on both sides of an argument? Am I making Okay, yes, you are. You are. Um, like, do we, do we run a risk of standing on one side? So, if I stand on the, the same side of the argument that you're on about black chat, Yes, I think you do run that risk. I think you do. Yes, yes, Can I just, Mark. I, I think, um, if I understood you correctly, you're thinking about just 
ideology can justify chattel slavery. Mm -hmm. But couldn't so the account of God that the Israelites had. So imagine when the Israelites yes. took over Palestine yes. and they mm -hmm. slaughtered people. Well, the yes. people that were slaughtered put them in the place of the chattel slaves. The people that were slaughtered. Yes. Yes. So they're thinking, wow, what kind of God is this that's it, that says that I'm no longer worthy of existence? It's the same kind of move, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So and God becomes the God. But, but see, the problem here is that this is the God of Revelation. But it's also, <laughs> but it's also the same right. the position mm -hmm. that, let's say, contemporary mm -hmm. thinkers mm -hmm. can occupy. Right. It, it, but I, I do think, though, I do think, because when I, when I use this term, ontotheology, I'm really talking about a very narrow species of philosophical reasoning that deals with God in such a way that God becomes less of a God with big G and more of a philosophical explanation. Because when we're going to have, if we're going to, if all, we're, if all God's going to do is give us philosophical explanations, then we can have philosophical explanations for anything. We can, we can use that narrow species of philosophical reasoning to justify just about anything we want to on rational grounds. Why? Because that same, and again, this, you know, I hate to, I like Aristotle. I really do. I hate to pick on Aristotle. But, I mean, you know, it, of course, if you're, if you're not Greek, you know, you're going to be a barbarian. And if you're a barbarian, then according to Aristotle, you're a slave by nature, right? Nature has made you that way. So you, you have to be a slave, right? And why, is, why, do, why do we have to do that? Well, we have to do that because we have to explain everything. We have to give, we have to give an account of everything. We have to give an account of all that is, right? So it's a, it's a certain species of reasoning now, again, the examples that, you've, that we've been talking about in the Old Testament, I think they have their own problems, and you might, you might be able to play both sides, as you said, but I think if you did, you'd be doing it for reasons that are, in some sense, fundamentally self-interested, but it's a different kind of self-interest that I'm trying to get at with this certain narrow kind of philosophical reasoning, if that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's okay. Thank you. Yes. So I, I definitely feel the force of your argument. Sure. Your, your, your examples are compelling, and, and I think your point is valid that you know we should start attributing things to God to justify our assumptions about Him. Sure. But I, I just wonder where your argument leads. I mean, does it lead us to the apophatic part of the Christian tradition? Mm -hmm. We can't say anything about God because mm -hmm. then that also makes me nervous. Then, then I'm starting to think, well, okay, but, you know, when James Cone said, talks about the God of the oppressed in his work, mm -hmm. um, the mm -hmm. great black liberation theologian, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, wouldn't your argument kind of rule out that kind of reasoning? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, a kind of reasoning that, 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 that I want us to be able to engage in to mm -hmm. say God stands on the side of the oppressed. Mm -hmm. No, God does not justify 
mm-hmm. slavery, where mm-hmm. God stands on the side of the oppressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you don't stand on the side of the oppressed, then you are standing against God. Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. Simplified version of Cohen's argument. Sure, sure. So I, I'm just wondering, how, how, do you, how do you approach that, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that if I would go as far as the apophatic tradition, although the apophatic tradition has a certain appeal to it. It has a certain moral impulse to it, right? I mean, this notion that we could predicate qualities of God the way we can the table or the chair, etc., is is problematic, and I get the impulse there. However, we also, I think, have to fundamentally deal with John 1.14, which is that the word was made flesh, right? And dwelt among us and we beheld its glory. So in liberation theology, you're going to get this notion of God being on the side of the oppressed. You get a Christology that is much more attentive to Jesus's colonial situation, right? As a Jew in a ghetto of Nazareth, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I think that, I, I, un, I mean, I understand the impulse of the apophatic tradition, and I appreciate that. And, and the apophatic tradition, by the way, for the students here, is, is this tradition within Christianity of saying that you can't really say anything about God except what God is not. It's sometimes called negative theology, right? And it's making the point that, you know, you can't talk about God the way you could talk about tables, chairs, books, etc., because to do so is almost to reduce God to the level of common objects, right? And so it's almost in the apophatic tradition, there's almost a sense in which they want to stay away from that because they see that as cheapening the experience with God. Now, as to... So, so I, I get that, right? And I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to go that route for, for that reason, which is for that, the reason that you stated is because we, you know, you want to be able to say certain things about God. And see, this is another, this comes, brings us to another problem, right, with ontotheology. Because ontotheology gives you an account of a philosophical God, but it does not give you an account of the Trinity or of the incarnation or of Christ as such, right? Aristotle's God is not the triune Christian God. Aristotle's God is not Christ. It's not the God of 114, the word made flesh and dwelling among us and us beholding its glory. That is not Aristotle's God, right? Aristotle's God is a construct of reason. Aristotle's God is a philosophical explanation. It's a first principle of motion. That's not the same. So, so for example, Martin Heidegger is going to say in his 1957 essay, The Ontotheological Constitution of Metaphysics, who is going to sing or dance before the God of philosophy? Who's going to do that? Oh, come, let's worship the first cause. Sing hallelujah. Right? Somebody's going to do that. I mean, that almost sounds silly. Right? And so we have to differentiate between, 
I mean, if, if you're Christian or if you're Jewish, right, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, you have to differentiate between the God of those traditions, which I would argue is God with a big G, and, and the God that results from theology, which is the God of the small g that leads us to legitimating all of these types of social, political, and moral horrors in the name of being able to give an explanation, which I think is problematic. Does that answer your question? Sure. But not that um, I like what Elizabeth Johnson refers to as a, a metaphysical iceberg. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 Well, right. I mean, I think Leibniz would disagree with you, right? Uh, I'm not here to defend Leibniz. Leibniz is probably on my hit list of <laughs> onto theologians, right? But, uh, but in the end, I think, and Leibniz's theory goes a lot deeper than that, right? He talks about these non, non-spatial, non-temporal entities called monads, and each one is a microcosm of the whole universe, and they contain within it everything that the universe contains and so forth. So it gets to a very, very complicated uh, metaphysical explanation of all of this. And, I mean, all I can tell you is, you know, I, I tend to agree with you, right? I think that, you know, Leibniz in, in trying to, and, and there's nothing wrong, and let me just say this, there's nothing wrong with intellectual curiosity. There's nothing wrong with that. Right? There's nothing wrong with wanting to know. I mean, even in the Judeo-Christian tradition, I think in one of the Psalms, David said, says something to the effect of, uh, this one thing have I desired of the Lord, and this one thing will I seek first, that I may dwell within his house and in- inquire in his temple, right? That I may inquire, right? I, you know, I mean, you're here at a university, right? Learning is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that as such. But there is something fundamentally wrong when knowledge becomes an end and not a means. When the goal is to know for the sake of knowing, it becomes a problem. So this is how we get to the fall of humanity. The prohibition in Genesis, in the the garden, was don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because good and evil are not things to be known objectively, purely through your reason. How many of you have known a good thing to do and never done it? I'll raise both of my hands, right? Happens to me all the time, right? So you can know something is good. It doesn't mean you'll do it. 
Interestingly here, we have another philosophical perversion. Socrates, right? What does Socrates say? Well, if I, you know, if I, I want to know what good is, right? And he equates knowledge with virtue. And when we do that, we run into another problem. So the prohibition was not, I don't want you to know because I don't want you to learn. The problem is, I don't want you to just know. You have to know and then you have to do. And the mistake that we've made, I think, as human beings, is we, we fell in Eden because we sort of disregarded that idea. And we said, you know, I want to know good and evil. I just want to know it. Not interested in doing any good, I just want to know it. Right? And according to the Judeo-Christian tradition, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, it is what? Sin unto him. Right? So knowledge is never enough. And we can wax eloquently about monads and things being as they are for a reason, etc. But that never really gets us anywhere, morally. And so the moral problem is a problem wherein knowledge as an end becomes an idol. And in, in Matthew 16, verse 4, it's interesting, Jesus says that a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Well, this is interesting now because I get to talk about Augustine a little bit. I like Augustine, right? Augustine tells us signs always point beyond themselves, right? If you need to use the restroom, you don't stop at the sign. <laughs> at least I hope you don't, right? You don't stop at the sign and relieve yourself. You have to go beyond the sign. If you're driving down the turnpike or the blue route and you're hungry and you see a sign that says food, next exit, you don't stop at the sign with a knife and fork, right? You have to keep going. Why? Because the sign is always pointing somewhere else. So in Romans 1.20, Paul will write, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Why? Because when we look at nature, nature is a sign that points to God. Nature is not God, right? But it's a sign that points to God. So to seek after a sign, back to Matthew 16, verse 4, to seek after a sign is to seek something that is imminent and here instead of something that is transcendent and there. And in philosophy, we have chosen the former over the latter. We want God to be imminent and here, not the way that Christ is imminent, right? The way that reason is imminent, because I got to give an explanation. And that's the moral problem, I think, with onto theology. Yes. Wouldn't proper philosophical theology, natural theology, be 
there'd be the, the, the risk of confusing the sound within a signal path. Mm -hmm. But that's the, that's the, with awareness of the risk would mean that, that why couldn't the philosopher then go forward? Distinguish between the sound and the signal path. Realize that, yeah, the, the, the world does point to something more, but that's as an explanation for the, for the sound. That's fine. You can go forward, but giving giving and giving presenting us with a closed system with a closed philosophical rational account of god is not going forward going forward may be going forward in faith understanding that god is infinite and therefore all that unfolds before me in revelation for instance may be only a small part of who or what god is but when we purport to know god almost as an, to use the Kantian language, almost as an object of experience, we've moved away from a sort of authentic religious experience where we can move forward, as you said, beyond the world, right? And we've moved into, into what I think is idolatry. And, and so I would argue that there's nothing inconsistent about your suggestion that the theologian sort of go forward and the critique of ontotheology, because the critique, because ontotheology is not a forward movement. Ontotheology is making what is infinite finite. So Aristotle is very disturbed about the notion of an infinite regress. And so he has to cut off infinity with this idea that it stops somewhere. And so what is infinite is made finite because for human beings, we're wired to see everything in terms of a beginning, a middle, and an ending. So in my view, there's nothing inconsistent with the idea of going forward and the idea of eschewing a certain way of philosophical thinking that says we don't really need to go forward. In fact, we can stay right here because this is the God that explains everything. Any other questions? Yes. Um, so we have this connection between uh, a specific methodology of theology, like what you're on to say is going down, and also justification of um, you know service. Mm -hmm. um, so which direction? Hmm. Well, I guess the way my presentation is structured, I think we move from philosophy outward. And then we, but along the way, right, when we see things that need explanation, we always revert back to this philosophical understanding in order to give an account of things along the way, right? So Aristotle has to give an account, because he has to explain everything, he has to give an account of the world, which in some ways he simplistically divides into Greeks and non-Greeks, <laughs> right? There's us and there's everybody else. And then he has to explain the phenomena across, you know, different cultures or what have you. And he has to do that. So 
I guess what I'm saying is I think we begin with this desire, at least as I've presented it here, this desire to understand the world and all that is, especially God, and make it graspable and intelligible for us. And then along the way, things that we see, we have to try to fit within that rational paradigm. And if we've come up with an idea of a God, then, and if that God is made in our image, which I think is almost inevitable, then whatever we want, however we explain things, is going to be an explanation consistent with the God that we have created. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, yes. I think, it's, I think it's very difficult to transcend those parochial limits. I think it's, it's very, very difficult to do that. I think people have tried to do that, right? I mean, I, I'm not uh, certainly a deep scholar in Thomism or medieval philosophy, but you know, from what I understand, there's been a lot of appropriation of Aristotelian cosmology, et cetera, absorbed into the scholastic tradition, right? And so we've tried to do that, but see, then you run into the problem of what I think are two very different gods. Now, we could try to make them the same, right? But I, I, think, I think it's very hard to do that. I think it's very hard to do that, and I think when you do that, you run the risk of compromising the integrity of both gods, right? Uh, both, you know, I mean, because I can't tell you how many times I've had, you know, philosophers, you know, make this point, and it's a good point. Aristotle's God is not the God of the Bible, you know? It's, it's not, <laughs> you know? We can try to sort of make it that way, but it really is. I think it's very hard to do that, yeah. Yes. Okay, so, so I'm thinking about your comment about God as a white God or a priest. Mm -hmm. or, um, how, how does, so, so I, I'm assuming that since that's possible, mm -hmm. and you've given a good argument as to why not only that's possible, but that it's actually in mm -hmm. practice or is practice, mm -hmm. is it possible then for, say, there to be an afterdimensional God? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that I would be, and here's why. For instance, you mentioned James Cone earlier, right? James Cone 
is the starting points for the God of philosophy and the God of liberation theology, for example, are entirely different starting points. Starting point of the God of philosophy that leads to the justification of all these bad things is a, a philosophical understanding that sort of emanates from an aristocracy that has time for reflection, that has time for the development of ideas along these philosophical lines, and that assumes not only an intellectual control, but a certain sort of financial, right? A certain, they have resources at their disposal, right? Now, if you contrast that with someone like James Cone, James Cone is, is trained deeply in the Christian theological tradition, wrote his dissertation on Karl Barth, I believe. And so he's operating within certain theological resources. So his, his starting point is different. He's also coming from a place where he is in some sense, uh, I don't want to say uh, reacting, but he is responding to a certain type of oppression that takes place in the, what may take place in the name of the ontotheological God. And whereas the ontotheological God is not a Christian God, the argument with liberation theology, black liberation theology, for example, is explicitly engaged with the Christian tradition and Christian theological resources in a way that ontotheology is not. And so there's something very different about the way that someone like, so for example, there's no Christology or soteriology in ontotheology, right? But in liberation theology, and I argue that liberation theology really begins with Marsilius of Padova in the Defensor Pasis, who's going to argue that Jesus assumes a certain level of poverty, right? So there's a sense in which Jesus becomes associated with the poor even in the late medieval period, right? And of course, Marsilius was banished and excommunicated and so forth and so on, which one would expect given his message in those times. But the point is that I think liberation theology in engages explicit Christian theological resources in a way that Anto theology doesn't. And so for that reason, I think it's a little bit different. I wasn't, okay, fair enough. I wasn't thinking of liberation theology in particular. I'm just okay. wondering about human, human consciousness and its desire to understand. And, and, it's, and I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to take apart mm -hmm. the idea that this is a Euro male thing. Okay. And that it's more of a human thing. So in other words, sure. Yes. That's all I was trying to say. Absolutely. It's not, it's yeah. not a, I can. We're not making no. a claim about a particular culture being set up this way. Although it has tremendous Right. Although I mean those the, vulnerabilities to that. Right. And so right, so this presentation uses a sort of certain white western male onto theological construct, but I wouldn't dispute that that same kind of construct could emanate from other racial or ethnic groups. Yeah, yeah, yes. If I could just piggyback on that. Sure. Uh, 
various political consequences of, say, a Latino hero being included in popular theology in the present historical context would not likely be the same because of the power structures. Perhaps. Well, I guess I was thinking about Perhaps. I was thinking about the Aztec Empire. I was thinking about the the Egyptian Empire. They're all they all come up with cosmologies that tend to privilege those who have power. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So so the universe becomes intelligible in such a way that I stay in power mm -hmm. as the pharaoh, for example, mm -hmm. or as the emperor in the, of the Aztec mm -hmm. Empire or the Incas or any, any of these great mm -hmm. empires. They have theology, mm -hmm. and I would I would wonder if there's ontotheology happening there mm -hmm. because it, it it goes to this 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 early question. I think there's there's a there's a motivation to justify what is. Mm -hmm. Right, <laughs> right, and it becomes the eternal according to whomever, right? right? Yes, yes. Well, I think so. Right. So, but we we have to we have to. I mean, there has to be some way in which we account for this anthropomorphism, though, right? Uh, and if the anthropomorphism is happening, and we are producing a philosophical god that seems not like human beings. I'm not sure what other explanation I can give 
for the outcome except that the same rationality that gives rise to the idea of a philosophical God perhaps unconsciously leads us down this cultural and social and political path. I, you know, that, that's, I mean, that's my response to that. I don't, so, you know, clearly then, if you take Godwin's argument, and this is, this is where I think, you know, when you have an argument like that, that justifies chattel slavery, that has this roots, that its roots in this Cartesian sort of dualism, right? There's a way in which we are using a, a, an ontotheological understanding of human beings to do something that in the political realm we probably should not be doing. So, you know, there may be examples, there may be examples that seem to be more attenuated between the outcome and the origin, but ultimately I think that whenever you have an impulse that wants to give an account of something, it gives that account in terms of the origin of the people who think about it. And that's why it's a God with a small g. I don't know if that really, uh, I've tried to address your question with the God one example, which I think is, is the one that best does it. There may be others that are better, but I think that's the one that does it the best. I mean, but I appreciate that. So we could perhaps talk some more. Thank okay. you. Well, thanks everyone for coming. Thank you, Dr. Bowles. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.